This morning, again, we're going to be in Jonah. Uh, we're going to be starting in verses in chapter 1, looking at verses 7 through 10. And so before I read that, I'll just recap where we're at in the book of Jonah. Last week, we looked and we saw that God had called Jonah to go to a wicked city and to share the truth that God had shared with him to a people who did not deserve it. And Jonah found this incredibly offensive. He knew that to go to Nineveh would mean his death and that God's plan was mistaken because sure Surely these people, as wicked as they were, would never turn to the Lord and would only humiliate and, and kill Jonah. And so Jonah takes off as far in the other direction from God's will in his life as he possibly could. And he finds himself on the boat heading away and the storm comes. And as the storm comes, Jonah, who had already ran as far as he could, he goes, finds a way to run a little bit farther. He goes down into the, the, the depths of the boat and numbs himself, seeking to go to sleep, trying to run from the will of the Lord. But as we saw last week, that is not something that we're able to do. When God loves loves us, he will get his, and his pursuit of Jonah is relentless. And so I'm going to read with you chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. And they said to one another, come let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid. And they said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then he said to them, what shall we do to you that the sea may be quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish. For this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and they hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. And then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and they made vows. Father, thank you for this morning and just for this time that you allow us to come before you. Um, And to offer our songs to you, to offer our minds, our hearts, um, all of us to you. Uh, God, I pray uh, that you might be glorified um, just in the posture of our hearts and um, in the words that uh, that are shared this morning. Um, God, would you do a work in us? Your word is is abundantly powerful, and we know this. And so we pray um, that it might conform us to your image this very day. Holy Spirit, we are dependent on you for this to happen. And so we just ask you to do what only you can do and uh, and just bend us in accordance with your will um, that we may be more like you. I love you. I pray these things in your good name. Amen. So looking at verses 7 through 10. 
In verse 7, we see that the men, as we talked about last week, they fully understood that this storm was of supernatural origin. They did not worship the Lord, but they were spiritual and they could recognize that something was going on that was bigger than them. We saw last week that these men all had a different God and they just picked a different God every Friday. They were very spiritual and understood the divine, but they did not know the Lord of Lords. And verse 8 The lots identified that Jonah was the reason for the storm. So they rightly, they want to know, who are you? And more importantly, what have you done that this would come upon us? And then in verse 9, Jonah confesses that he follows the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. And he acknowledges that the Lord created all things, including the storm that threatens them. Jonah has been aware of this from the start. It's the reason he went down into the boat. It's the reason that he went into a deep sleep of grief. In verse 10, rightly, we see that this caused the men great fear. Their suspicion of divine wrath was confirmed. And they asked the question, what have you done? And so Jonah had previously confided in them that he was running from God, but they didn't take that to heart. Like, they all had gods that were just something they did, were just tradition. They ran from a different God every Friday. Like, they rolled their eyes like, oh, I get it. Come on board. Pay your fare. But now they understand Jonah wasn't running just from any God. He was running from the God. And then in verses 11 through 17, we see in verse 11 that God's wrath did not subside. That they kind of hoped maybe the storm would go down, but it didn't. The storm only grew worse as Jonah hid from the will of the Lord. In verse 12, Jonah presents the men with the only option to spare their life. Jonah tells the men to throw him into the sea. And he assures them that that will surely cause the storm to cease. I want to spend just a little bit of time on that idea. In verse 13, Jonah tells the men that his life must be given in order to save theirs. But this is too high a cost for the men. Surely this cannot be. We can't bear that cost. The men recognize the weight of this. We're not going to give a life on behalf that our lives might be saved. They resisted. They felt like surely if they just increased their effort, if we just row harder, that'll suffice. The cost can't be this weighty. It kind of echoes Peter who tells Jesus, like, surely, surely this can't be. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And so they begin to row harder, trying to get to safety and avoid the cost of such a sacrifice. My friend, this is surely the initial reaction of many who hear the gospel. Surely my salvation must not require this. Surely it must not require such a costly sacrifice. Can't I just row harder? Can't I just try harder? But as we see in verses 14 and 15, eventually the men drop their oars and recognize the storm is only getting bigger. They are no match for the Lord of Lords. And they cry out for the first time to the true God. They acknowledge his will and they ask for mercy that they may not be found guilty of Jonah's death. And then just as God had hurled the storm upon them, they take Jonah and they hurl him into the raging sea. And the storm stops instantly, like a light switch. The verse that Sam read for you this morning comes from the book of Matthew. Verse 38 through 41, I want to read it again. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, 
An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no one, no sign will be given to them except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment and this, of, with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus references this instant with Jonah when addressing the Pharisees. The sign of Jonah, what does that mean? Jesus is declaring the truth that he would be the better Jonah. That Jesus would be the better Jonah. As Jonah would sacrifice himself to save these pagan sailors, so would the Son of Man sacrifice himself to save us. Jonah's sacrifice here, I don't want you to miss the weight of it. It points to a better sacrifice. Jonah was cast into the sea for his own sins. Christ would taste death for the sins of others. Jonah would come near death. Jesus took the cup of death and drank of it fully. Scripture is clear, and Jesus reiterates over and over, substitutionary love is the greatest picture man can produce of the gospel. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, giving his life as a ransom for many. Greater love has no man than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jonah may well have been at a place where he despaired of life. His grief had overcome him. But that was certainly not his greatest motivation. Jonah stood on the boat and saw that these men, who he previously claimed he cared nothing for, his heart was previously that these pagans don't deserve, but now he recognizes that these men were going to face demise because of him. And so he offers himself that his new friends might live. When Jonah was cast into the sea, Scripture says the storm stopped. Note that's what, just note that what's most miraculous about this is not simply that the storm ceases, but the storm was literally the anger of God towards rebellion, and God's anger ceases. Romans chapter 3, verse 25 says, Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Propitiation means a sacrifice that turns away the wrath of God. And therefore it makes God propitious or favorable toward us. As Jonah being cast into the sea caused God's wrath to cease and thus saved the lives of these pagan sailors, so Christ being cast into death caused God's wrath towards us to cease. Now I just want to be real for a minute. When we hear things like that, when we read scripture like that, it can be easy for us to ask the question, especially in times of doubt, is God petty? Like, is that what this is? Texts like this can lead us to think thoughts like this, but we must look further to see what is truly revealed about the nature of God in this text. Number one, the wrath of God is only understood in light of his perfect holiness. 
That God is not like us. He is perfectly holy. There is no sin or flaw within him. Perfect holiness for us is unfathomable. It's like if a group, if you could only see the color green, if everything was just a different shade of green, how would I even begin to explain to you what red is? Like you don't even have a framework for getting that. In the same way, for us, understanding the perfect holiness of God is unfathomable. We can get a taste of it, we can get a glimpse, and just that is enough to fling us to our knees, but we don't understand the full weight of that. We can be taken aback by God's anger towards sin. But have you not ever experienced that? Have you not ever experienced righteous anger in regards to the injustices of this world? I would guess most certainly you have. If you've lived on this earth at any time at all, you've come to a place where sin and the effect it had on people, maybe a group of people who are oppressed or someone who's hurt or the hungry or the, the child that is abused, that you know that they didn't deserve that. Whatever it is, you've felt righteous anger. But you have felt righteous anger about sin as a sinner. So how much more is the perfectly holy God of the universe, who there's no sin in him, worthy of a much greater anger? And rightly just in feeling such. He is angry towards sin as one who is perfectly holy. Number two, we have to recognize in this instance, God is incredibly gracious to Jonah. If Jonah had fleed the direct command of a king on this earth, he would surely die. There's no question. Off with his head, game over. How much more should the penalty be for one who flees the perfectly holy God of the universe, who created Jonah, who knit him together in his mother's womb? Yet the Lord not only spares Jonah's life, but he teaches him something as a loving father in the midst of this time. Number three, we recognize God is, just as God is gracious to Jonah, he is abundantly gracious to us. Perfect justice demands retribution. Sin must be atoned for. The Bible describes perfect justice as an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And sin against a perfectly holy God is treason against one who is the the ultimate eternal picture of glory. And it must be atoned for. Yet God, being rich in mercy, he paid that price himself. The wrath poured out upon Christ on our behalf is excruciating. It's difficult to, we we can't even look upon it or gaze upon it. Yet it tells us all that we need to know about God. That he chose to bear that weight himself. The story of Jonah is not the story of a trivial God but of a loving father who is relentless in pursuit of his children. Last week we talked about Jonah's greatest motivation for running. He didn't trust the Lord. He feared that if he fully trusted God and submitted to his will, he would find, one, that the Lord was wrong, or worse, that the Lord just didn't really care for Jonah. For us, however, we have a benefit that Jonah did not. We have seen, we have been blessed with evidence of the contrary in Christ. Jonah didn't know of the one whom his sacrifice foreshadowed. When he was cast into the sea, when he gave his life on behalf of those sailors, he didn't know that. He didn't know that Nineveh was reflective of God's love for a pagan world. He was not fully aware 
of the means by which God would ultimately redeem his children in Christ. Yet you and I are aware. We have a, we have a blessing that Jonah didn't have. One who would sacrifice himself on our behalf is surely one who is worth following, worth trusting completely with our lives. And the sailors, they came to that conclusion themselves. Because verse 16 says, Then the men feared the Lord. These pagans, men, these sailors, who I could only imagine were some rough dudes, they saw the fingerprints of God, and they feared him. I want to just notice for a second the progression and contrast of fear. In verse 5 of chapter 1, we see it says uh, that they were afraid, and each cried out to his God. So we see this general fear. It's stormy outside. They appeal to their God. They're, they're beginning to be afraid. Verse 10, then the men were exceedingly afraid. And they said to him, what is this that you have done? This is a, it becomes an intense fear. This is fear that they might die without hope. But then in verse 16, then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. In verse 16, fear matured into an appropriate reverence for God, a holy fear. Previously, they thought of Jonah, they thought of God simply as Jonah's cultural religion of choice. Everybody, your God was whoever, wherever you're from. That's still pretty prevalent today for many, their religion, their God, it's really just their heritage. It's where they came from. And that's how these men thought of Jonah's God. But now, they see him as the one true God, the God of the sea. And they call him here by his covenant name, Yahweh. And this leads us to believe they experienced the salvation of the Lord. They received what the psalmist describes when he says in Psalm 111.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. See, I want you to notice something about the sailors. It's not surprising that they appeal to the Lord in verse 14. Okay, in verse 14, therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. Like the storm's raging, they're about to die, the water's coming up over the edge. Of course they cry out to the Lord. It's not surprising that they would appeal. Many will appeal to the Lord simply in the midst of the storm, seeking to earn his favor, like praying to the Lord as the plane is going down. Like that's universal, okay? Everybody's on board with that. Note, though, that this is different. This is not what these men did. They worshipped after the danger was gone. The storm's gone. The light switch is flipped. Clear skies, birds chirping. Then... They called upon Yahweh and worshipped the Lord. They experienced the unmerited grace of God and they worshipped him. They offered sacrifices not to earn God's favor. They weren't, it doesn't say they were offering sacrifices while they were pleading for God to not kill us. But they offered sacrifices in response to the favor God had given them. This is how the gospel works, my friend. Our God, there, there is no act, there is no obedience, there's no checklist that we're capable of keeping that will give us right standing before God. There's no sacrifice we can present, there's nothing we can muster that will do that. But God offers that freely in Jesus. 
tells us something of his character, of who he really is, the love that he has for his children. And because of that, in response to what we've been given in Christ, it's out of response to that that we seek to offer up our sacrifices. Because of who he is. And this takes us to verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. In verse 17, we see something peculiar. God rescues Jonah through a large fish that swallows him up. Jonah is facing death in the sea. Jonah has accepted his life is over. He he goes into the sea and God swallows him up with a great fish where he would stay for three days and three nights. I'm just going to acknowledge an elephant really quick. A lot of people get hung up on this story because of the fish. There are a lot of people who are like, man, I love the book of Jonah, but then they'll give you a long scientific explanation about how you couldn't really live in the belly of a whale and stomach acid and all these things. Yes. If you get swallowed up by a fish tomorrow, there's more than likely you will not live. But if you die and are put in the tomb, you're also not going to come out in three days. Okay, so can we, we can just accept that the God who created the fish who created Jonah, is capable of doing whatever he wills in the belly of the fish. So don't get caught up in like the, all the science of that. Like if God deems you to live in the belly of a fish, you will live and he's in control of that. That's not above him. So that's all I'm going to say about that. It's God. The three days and three nights were foreshadowing the means by which God would defeat sin and rescue his people. The three days and three nights that Jonah would spend in the belly of the fish were reflective of the empty tomb that would be when the better Jonah would die for our sins, just as his love for Nineveh was reflective of his love for the world. And so in chapter 2 is the prayer of Jonah. It's Jonah's response. It's in the prayer of Jonah, we see what God teaches him in the belly of the fish. And I'm not going to touch on every verse in this prayer. I want to encourage you this week, and I'm going to post on our our group, to read the prayer of Jonah. But I want to look this morning at the collective message. Most significantly, this prayer shows us that Jonah learned a great deal about God in the midst of an incredibly sobering and what seemed like hopeless experience. I want to point out two things the storm did for Jonah that it also does for his people. Number one, for the Christian, our greatest times of growth will often come in our most challenging seasons. This is a consistent theme amongst God's people. It's always been this way. Individual believers and churches often experience great hardships in order that they might be prepared and postured correctly for the work ahead. Suffering is never meaningless for the believer. It's never meaningless for the bride. In the midst of this watery prison near death at the bottom of the sea, Jonah was reminded of who the Lord was. He was reminded of the reason he was created and he postured himself rightly in dependence before the Lord. God is preparing him for what lied ahead and posturing him in such a way that he might have what he needed to do what the Lord willed. Secondly, there's another thing. When a believer makes the decision to embrace sin and to run from the Lord, Not only, like we talked about last week, will they typically withdraw and go deeper into the boat to hide. 
But it typically requires a radical intervention of the Lord to turn them back to him. In Jonah's case, he was a picture of both of these things. In both of these instances, suffering is an expression of divine love. A loving loving intervention for a beloved child of the king. Either preparation or returning home for the Christian, suffering is is one or the other. He's either preparing you for what he has for you, that you might be conformed to his image, or he's calling you to come back to him. And for some, like the most loving thing that God could do is throw a storm down that makes you turn back and come to him where you rightly belong. It's the most loving thing he could do. I enjoy movies. I've been trying to watch better movies over the last couple years. I don't watch many, so I've been trying to watch higher quality films, if you will, okay? Superhero movies are the exception to that. I've also seen a couple movies with the guys here that didn't turn out as good as I hoped, so that's a disclaimer. But in 2019, the movie that affected me the most emotionally was actually a 2018 film called Beautiful Boy. The film is an American biographical drama based on the memoirs Beautiful Boy, A Father's Journey Through His Son's Addiction by David Sheff, and Tweak, Growing Up on Methamphetamines, written by Nick Sheff, David's son. Disclaimer, even though Michael and Holly star in this film, it's not an office thing. It's not funny. Okay, like it's totally, totally false advertising. This film is about the relationship of a father and a son as a son wrestles with addiction. This film is painful to watch because the son lies, turns away, seems better, but relapses time and time again. The strain between he and the father becomes more and more overwhelming with each scene change in the movie. But as the film winds to a close, there's a terrible scene, but it's a point where the movie makes a meaningful shift. Nick is with a young woman, and they're using, and the woman overdoses and faces death. She's revived, but she almost dies. When Nick calls his father for what seems like the hundredth time in this film, promising change and begging to come home, David, for the first time, says no. For the first time, the father does not chase after the son, but he allows him to feel the weight of his betrayal. The son then overdoses, is found on a bathroom floor, is taken to the hospital where he survives, shares an embrace with his father, and enters into a prolonged season of sobriety and recovery that, as far as I know, he's still holding to today as he's now a national speaker about recovery. In his book, David writes, he writes this quote, Fortunately, There is a beautiful boy. Unfortunately, he has a terrible disease. Fortunately, there is love and joy. Unfortunately, there is pain and misery. Fortunately, this story is not over. Like us, Jonah had a terrible disease called sin. In love, the father predestined that his child, this rebellious prophet, might find his low point, afraid, hungry, and broken in the bottom of the sea, that he might be restored. In the belly of the fish, all of Jonah's talent, all of his self-sufficiency was stripped away. Jonah had flaws in his character that Jonah was really good at hiding in life when everything was good. Nobody could see it. Even he didn't see it when everything was well. But here in the belly of the fish, 
Jonah reaches a point of complete and utter failure. And in that place, he finds abundant hope. Growth through failure, growth through suffering are not unique amongst the people of God. They are the norm. Peter is called Satan. He denies Jesus three times. He's the rock upon which Christ would build his church. Joseph is abandoned by his family, sold into slavery, falsely imprisoned because of a lie against him. And he becomes a powerful leader in Egypt. God used him to rescue an entire nation. Abraham, Jacob, Elijah, the list goes on and on and on. Same story. You, I, same story. As we prepare to close this morning, I just want to talk about what Jonah learned about God as revealed in chapter 2, as revealed through his prayer to the Lord. In chapter 2, verse 2, Jonah starts his prayer by saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. When Jonah hit the water, his posture changed for the first time in this story. He's no longer running. But he cries out to the Lord, and the Lord rescued him. My daughter, my middle daughter, it's always my middle daughter. She has a, that's this terrible habit. Recently, where when she gets mad at me, she'll throw a little tantrum. And in the midst of her tantrum, she wants nothing to do with me. Don't touch me. You know, she's so mad. She's gritting her little teeth, her little glasses. is adorable. She wants nothing to do with me. But, it, but she's very clumsy. So in the midst of her little tantrum, it's not uncommon that she runs into the wall as she's walking away or she falls down and bumps her knee. And then instantly, daddy, daddy hugged me. Daddy like runs to me. Like it's over. It's over. I want you. I'm sorry. And she runs to me. When Jonah hit, Jonah was throwing a fit. He got on the boat because he's throwing a tantrum. But when everything hit, when everything hit the fan. He wants to be with dad. He cries out to the Lord. And in verse 3, For you cast me into the sea, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Jonah recognizes the cause of his plight. He doesn't blame the sailors. They're the ones who actually tossed him overboard. Much like Joseph didn't blame his brothers who were the ones who actually sold him into slavery. But he says instead, You cast me. You cast me into the sea. Jonah deserved divine justice, and he acknowledges that before the Lord. In verse 6, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. He acknowledges he's unable to save himself. He begins to rejoice in the Lord, anticipating the rescue that he believes the Father will provide. In verse 7, When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. He appeals to the mercy seat by referring to the holy temple. It was from the mercy seat in the temple that God promised to speak to his people. The mercy seat was this slab slab of gold over the Ark of the Covenant in which resided the Ten Commandments. And Exodus 25-22 says, There I will meet you, and from above the mercy seat, from, uh, from between the two cherubim that are on the Ark of the Testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. On the Day of Atonement, 
A priest sprinkled the blood of the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the people on the mercy seat. Only through the death of another can we pray to the Lord. The temple sacrifice held the place of the permanent, perfect sacrifice that would allow us even greater access to God. No longer dwelling in the temple, but in the believer. This is why we sing of the great high priest whose name is love, who lives and pleads for me. Because Jesus is the great high priest, the better one. And in 2.9, what I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. His culmination of right theology leads him to stand in awe, professing what some call the central verse of Scripture. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It takes the entire prayer to get there, but Jonah utters the greatest plea of dependence and hope any man can utter. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Earlier we spoke of the sailors that were brought to a fear of the Lord despite Jonah's failings. Like Jonah failed. He failed them. He withheld the truth for a big chunk of the time he was on the boat. But yet God saved them because salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah ran from God, but the Lord would still have him because salvation belongs to the Lord. Paul was a wicked man with no desire for the Lord, only hatred. Yet he was saved through the intervention of the king because salvation belongs to the Lord. Nineveh was a wicked city with no right to be saved. But the Lord desired to rescue them nonetheless, because salvation belongs to the Lord. This verse is filled with power. It is not an excuse for keeping the good news to ourselves. It was not right that Jonah did that for so much of his time. But it is the very reason that we share boldly. I am unable to save anyone. I cannot cause change in anyone. I can't make anything spiritual happen with anyone. I have no such power. But God is abundantly able to save anyone, even Nineveh. In grace, he invites me to partake in this miraculous work, not because he needs me, but because he loves me. Because I get to sit by dad at his workbench of grace as he does the work that only he can do. That's my motivation. I desire to share the good news that I might go to work with dad and witness what he does in the midst of those whom he loves. And I can have confidence to share even if I stumble, if I stutter, if I'm mocked, if I'm rejected, because I know my father will save who he wills. Salvation belongs to him. His hope for saving his people isn't dependent on me. His best plan for rescuing my neighbor is not just dependent on me, but I'm invited into that. That he's, he's going to have who he wills, and I get to be a part of that because he loves me. He invites me to participate for his glory and my good. I do not lie awake at night in fear of my failings because salvation belongs to my Father, and I trust him. He will spur me forward to accompany him in the work that he will do as he did Jonah. I cannot create fire. Only the Lord can. But he invites me to prepare the setting. I can stack the wood. I can fill that stack with kindling. I can shield that. I can do my best to shield that stack from the, the elements of false teaching. I can put everything in place. 
But only Dad has the matches. Dad creates the fire. And he invites me to appeal to him on that behalf. And so I, I do. And I recognize that salvation is his. And that he lights the fire. But he invites me to take part in such a process out of his love for me. The last lesson I'll share as we're winding up is a sobering one. And it'll lead us into next week. Right before this powerful verse, salvation belongs to the Lord, we see a little glimpse of the work that is still yet to do in Jonah's heart as seen in verse 8. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Jonah still has much to learn. He's speaking of the people of Nineveh, making known why he believes they have forfeited the Father's love. While that is true, they are undeserving of such love. We're going to learn in the sermons ahead that Jonah still resents that the Lord would show them mercy anyway. The Lord has taught Jonah much, but he still has some to learn. There is still some, some things in his heart that are going to have to be unpacked and worked through because he still holds. You should not save them. They have forsaken that. They are not worthy of that. Jonah is growing in the knowledge of the Lord, and in the belly of the fish he learns many things. But he still has many things left to learn. So is true of you and I, Christian. Jonah is still struggling with this sense of superiority, and the Lord is just beginning to peel that from him as we're just halfway through this book. You see, it's easy for Jonah to see the idols of Nineveh. It's clear as day because they're out in the open. Like he gets it. They're just obviously worshiping idols. But it's much harder for him to see the idols that reside in his own heart about who he believes he is and what he believes he's earned. This process will be painful. But as Jonah acknowledges the truth of the gospel, the Lord releases him to dry land. And that's where we end this day. In verse 10, and the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, thank you for your goodness and graciousness. That you were patient with us, you are abounding in steadfast love. Lord, when we cry out to you, you come. And thank you for such truth. God, like Jonah, when we turn from you, when we throw our fit of, of self-righteousness or fear or its birds from lack of trust, God, would you be so merciful to turn us back to you? Lord, bring upon the storm if you must. Lord, take away from us whatever you must, that we might turn to you, that we might run to you. Lord, remind us when we are in the belly of the fish that hope is not lost. But meet us there. Lord, if there are any in that position here today who find themselves in the belly of the fish or maybe they're just on the boat trying to get away, Lord, call them back. Remind them of your steadfast love. Holy Spirit, intervene that they might turn and lean into you and forsake all else for your good and your glory. God, we are in need of you desperately. 
Give us eyes to see when you are preparing us for the things that you would have of us. Lord, Lord, would hardship and sorrow not bend us, but would it not break us because of the truth of the gospel? Lord, would you be our hope in all things? Would would our sufferings turn us to you that we might grow and increase in our knowledge and our hope and our just clinging to you, Lord Almighty? Make this so. Put us through whatever you must that you might receive the most glory. And when we come to you, we can come to you, Lord, only because one died on our behalf. We acknowledge that, and would we steward such a blessing? I love you. I thank you. I thank you for these people, and I thank you for the truth of your word. And I pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.